So if you've got a Bible handy, and uh, I think it'll be on the screen as well, if you want to go to Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 14 will be our passage for today on which the teaching is based. So Galatians 3, 10 through 14, let me read this for us. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word, and since I can't hear you, I'll say the other part too. Thanks be to God. So, uh, during this season of Lent, we've been looking at the work of Christ on the cross, or the atonement, from different different angles, if you will. If you think of the atonement as like a a diamond, every time you look at it from a different, different direction or a different way, you see new light, new colorful reflection, and new beauty from, from what you're looking at. And so thus far, we've looked at Christ and his work on the cross as our example in suffering, as our victor over death and sin. Last week, we talked about what it means that Christ is our ransom and redeemer. And then today, we want to consider something incredibly profound, as you've already heard from the passage and from, uh, from Daniel, Christ as our curse. What does it mean that Christ would be our curse? Well, it turns out that this idea or motif of curse is a pretty old one. It's made its way into many of our oldest stories and many modern ones as well. You can probably think of some off of the top of your head, like Beauty and the Beast. Uh, My son Grayson really likes this one. You know the story where Belle agrees to live in the castle of a horrendous beast who's under a terrible curse only to come to love the beast and to teach the beast what it means to love in return, thus breaking the curse. Or even Harry Potter, you know, where the child who lived is spared from Voldemort's killing curse by the power of his mother's love. Or for more of a classic throwback, you might think about Sleeping Beauty, you know, who's cursed to sleep until true love's kiss comes to break the curse and awaken her. And while all the details, you know, of these stories vary a little bit, you can just about always find a common thread. There's a great curse that can only be broken by a great hero, usually by costly sacrifice. And in some ways, the story of the Bible is a story like this. It's a story of a curse, of a hero who breaks the curse by his sacrifice, of a happy ever after for those who are rescued, and a final defeat of those who are evil. Now, by saying this, I don't mean to invite anyone to simply dismiss the Bible as a fairy tale or just a myth. In fact, I'd like to suggest just the opposite. I mean, why is it that you and I are often moved to tears when we watch or read some great story of love and costly sacrifice? Well, let me quote Frederick Buechner to you. He says, here and there, and not just in books, we catch glimpses of a world of once upon a time. And they lived happily ever after of a world where there's a wizard to give courage and heart 
and the angel with a white stone that has written on it our true and secret name, and it's so easy to dismiss it all. But if the world of the fairy tale and our glimpses of it here and there are only a dream, they are one of the most haunting and powerful dreams that the world has ever dreamed. So why, why are stories like this, fairy stories even, so captivating to us? Well, it's because they reflect something of our own story. I like how Professor Michael Reeves says it as well. He says, of course, the stories we tell and the dreams we dream echo him, Jesus Christ. He defines ultimate reality, and we simply do not have the ability to fashion any real alternative. We can imagine whole new worlds, but those worlds will not be wholly new. Thus, our stories are filled with serpent-like villains, with tragedies and damsels in distress, with brave young heroes who struggle against the darkness, who are wounded in the fight, who win, who finally get the girl and live happily ever after. And to return to Beekner one more time, he says, that is the fairy tale of the gospel, with, of course, one crucial difference from all other fairy tales, which is that the claim made for it is that it is true. And it has not only happened once upon a time, but has kept on happening ever since and is happening still. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but our passage, and indeed the course of the whole Bible, uh, essentially talks about a curse, a hero, and a blessing. Or to put it in more biblical terms for today, a curse, a cross, and a blessing. The curse, the cross, and the blessing. So first, the curse what do I mean by that? When I say that there's a curse in this story of life and that we all live under the curse, what does that even mean? You know, I'm not talking about poking pins and voodoo dolls or cooking up some magic apple in a boiling cauldron, right? But there's, there's so much Old Testament or Hebrew scripture background to this idea of curse. I'll try to give you a brief sketch of what it means, even though we don't really have time today to do justice to it. Although then again, maybe we do. <laughs> I don't know if you have somewhere to be right now, uh, this morning or what. I suppose you can always pause me and come back if you like. But uh, essentially, the curse in the Bible is living under the fallout of our fallout with God. It's living under the fallout of our fallout with God. To be cursed is to be cut off from God, to be cut off from his life and love and it's to live in darkness or confusion, to live in futility or a sense of purposelessness, or to live with fragility or insecurity. And of course, all this begins with the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve chose to distrust and rebel against their creator, their and their descendants are now all under this fallout curse. And it's, it's a multi-layered kind of thing, right? The first domino to fall for them was spiritual. They used to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day, but now they hide from him in fear and shame and ultimately are exiled from the garden and from his presence. And then the second domino to fall is personal or existential. They realize that they're naked and they're embarrassed and they're ashamed. The third domino is social or relational. They begin to blame one another for their sin and they introduce hate into the world. And then the fourth domino to fall for them is physical. They now eke out an existence from the ground of an uncooperative planet, subject to disease, excruciating pain, and ultimately to death. 
Uh, as one pastor put it, we will fight the dirt all of our lives, and in the end, we will be six feet under it. The dirt always wins. And I think we've all felt, you know, in these past weeks, a bit of what it means to live in a world that's cursed. I mean, there's nothing like a pandemic to make us feel like, yeah, we really are living under a curse. We feel, I mean, perhaps a bit more accurately than usual that we really are fragile, mortal, and even at some level, selfish. I mean, I've been asking, I've been asking my students like how I can pray for them in the midst of all the corona craziness, texting them or FaceTime, asking how I can pray for them. And the most common answer that I've been getting is pray for me and my family as we are all quarantined in our house together that we could get along with each other. <laughs> you know, besides praying for all the people in the world that are uh, sick and need God's help, they ask for pray for me and my, my family. And I totally get that. But like, isn't it really interesting that one of the most common prayer requests right now is just pray that we don't kill each other, you know, over the next few weeks in, in our house. And um, I joke, but of course, in all seriousness, there are many people for whom um, they don't just hate being home right now because they're bored or because they're extroverted, but their home is truly not a happy place to be. Maybe it's not a safe place to be. You see, socially, physically, personally, and ultimately, spiritually, we all live under a curse. And so the dichotomy of blessing and curse finds its way as a central theme through the entirety of the Old Testament, right from there in Genesis 3, all the way to the very last word of the book of Malachi. I mean, this afternoon, if you just go to Bible Gateway or some other Bible search and type in blessing, see what you get, and then type in curse, see what you get. You'll see what I mean. It's a total, total can of worms. But if I could take you to one place in the Old Testament that perfectly captures the idea of what it means to be blessed and then also cursed, it would be the great blessing of Israel. We still use this oftentimes at special occasions, like ba baby dedications, <laughs> but listen to Numbers chapter 6. It says this, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So according to the Bible, this is what it means to be blessed. For God's face to shine upon you, for him to keep you, for him to give you grace, for him to look at you and for you to look at him and to have peace. This is the highest blessing that anyone could ever have, to see the face of God in peace. So then, what would be the greatest curse? It would be the opposite. Uh, Professor R.C. Sproul says it would sound something like this. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back on you and give you misery. That is what it would mean to be cursed. Now, back to Galatians chapter 3, the passage where we started. Paul says something very critical here. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So those who rely on the law or depend on keeping God's commands to make them right with God or justified before God are, Paul says, under a curse. And then he quotes the book of Deuteronomy saying, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now to understand what he's getting after, we need to take a quick detour through Deuteronomy. A bit of chapter 27 and chapter 28. So if you're in your Bibles, you want to go there. In these chapters, Moses gave instructions to the Israelites that once they entered the land of Canaan and began to settle down as a nation, they were to have the laws read to them. And uh, the people would respond as they were read. They would respond, yes and amen, after the blessings were read. If we are blessed if we keep these laws, yes and amen. But then they would also say, yes and amen, after the laws were read, and said, yes, we'll be cursed if we break them. So you can see in the very last verse of Deuteronomy 27, it says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, amen. And then Moses goes on to expand this in chapter 28. So if you look at chapter 28, verse 1 of Deuteronomy, he says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. (laughs) So it's pretty straightforward. If you obey the voice of the Lord, he'll bless you when you're at home. He'll bless you when you're away. He'll bless your kids, your work, your cows, your chicken. It's like even your cooking and your baking will be blessed by God, right? But then there's the other side if you skip down to verse 15. He says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commands and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And it only only gets worse if you keep reading chapter 28. Now, when we read all that, many of us like Protestant salvation by grace alone Christians, we get a little nervous, right? Because it sounds like these verses are saying, if you keep God's laws, he'll bless you. If you break God's laws, he'll curse you. And if it sounds that way, it's because that's exactly what it said, okay? Good job. Pause your TV. Pat yourselves on the back for paying attention and then press play again. But Do come back because Paul says something really, really important about this. There's a reason we took this detour through Deuteronomy. He takes the words of the Old Testament to their blistering but logical conclusion. He says, you think 
that you can experience God's blessings or avoid his curse by keeping these laws, by your moral goodness, by your humanitarian efforts, or your religious observance? Good luck, he says. Now, why would he say this? Why would he say that anyone soliciting salvation through keeping God's laws is cursed? Isn't that kind of what we're supposed to do? But no, he says, at least there's two reasons I can think of that you just can't, you, you don't want to do that, that you will be cursed. First, very practically, you just can't pull it off. No one has ever actually done it. No one has continued to keep all the things that God has asked of us and really done them. I mean, Paul is saying, if you want to be made right with God by religious observance or moral decency, then you have to face up. You have to face up to exactly what God is asking of you. You have to love him before anything and above anything else. And you have to love your fellow humans as yourself, even the ones that you don't particularly like that much. You have to satisfy all the demands of God's law, and you have to keep it up throughout your life. As C.S. Lewis put it, no one really knows how bad they are until they have seriously tried to be good. But then there's another reason, a, a more personal reason, that attempting to appease God with moral decency does not work. I mean, if you're counting on your efforts to keep you in well with God, then I, th I think you'll be crippled by an unhealthy self-focus and a sense of anxiety, always wondering if you've done enough or not. And I think this will probably lead to resentment of God instead of love. Because you'll say, I just can't live up to his ridiculous standards anyway. He's just too hard to please. And you'll hate him for it. Or I suppose you could swing the other way and begin to think that you're actually doing pretty well in the moral economy, checking all the boxes, doing all the things. But ever so slowly, you'll begin to look down your nose at others who are not living up to your standards, and you'll become the person that disgusts everyone, including God, a proud religious Pharisee. And this, too, will probably lead you to resent God more than love him, because when suffering comes into your life or good things come to those that you don't really think deserve it, then you'll begrudge God for not giving you what you think you've earned from him, and you'll hate him for it. Either way, Paul says, people that rely on their own goodness to cajole God's favor are cursed because we've all offended God with our sin and even our attempts to work it off just end up backfiring. And so it's not that when we say the world is cursed that we're just some, under some sort of ethereal planetary curse. The scriptures are much stronger than this. They say we, we ourselves are cursed and under God's judgment, and deep down, we know it. Uh, there was a fascinating essay by a University of Oklahoma professor named William McClay. Uh, it was picked up by David Brooks of the New York Times, and it was called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And essentially, McClay argues that in the modern era, as uh, God has receded from public view and from popular life, Philosopher, prophets like Friedrich Nietzsche said, as a society, we will feel less guilty about our supposed ethical failings. That technology and science, these will direct us into a happier future 
freeing us from the moral straitjackets of the past. But according to McClay, this has not happened. If anything, our technological and economical advances in the West have made us feel more guilty because we realize that we're more responsible. Listen to his words. He says, I can see pictures of a starving child in a remote corner of the world on my television and know for a fact that I could travel to that faraway place and relieve that child's immediate suffering if I cared to. I don't do it, but I know I could. Although if I did so, I would be a well-meaning fool like Dickens' ludicrous Mrs. Jellybee who grossly neglects her own family and neighborhood in favor of the distant philanthropy of African missions. Either way, some measure of guilt would seem to be my inescapable lot as an empowered man living in an interconnected world. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. It goes on to make a pretty tough list. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. To be found blameless is a pipe dream. For the demands on an active conscience are literally as endless as an active imagination's ability to conjure them. Now, I think McClay's analysis is penetrating Because he says, even in the absence of a society-wide lack of belief in God, why does everyone still carry the haunting weight of moral responsibility? I mean, who is it that we're responsible to anyway? But he also points out that there's a terrible irony in this. Now that we've exiled God to the margins of our lives to escape our guilt, we're left holding the bag with no way to deal with it. He goes on to say, Science cannot do anything to relieve the guilt weighing down our souls, a weight to which it has added appreciably, precisely by rendering us able to be in control of and therefore accountable for more and more elements in our lives. Now, the point I'm trying to make is simply this. Deep down, we all know the weight of living under the curse of sin, the curse of the law, and the prospect of God's judgment. We can't seem to get away from it or out from under it. And if you have not felt that, if you have not felt the weight of what it means to live under the curse of sin, under the weight of the law of God and all of its demands, then I think you haven't looked closely enough. And if you haven't felt the weight of the curse, then everything I'm about to say about the grace and mercy of God will seem to you unnecessary or worse obligatory on God's part. But if you understand the curse, then you will be ready for the cross. Galatians 3, verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So what, what is this all about? What we read here is, this is a sacred mystery that the Son of God breaks our curse by bearing our curse and somehow even, he uses the words, becoming our curse. But you see, Paul didn't make this up. The gospel accounts of Jesus' death 
make this exceedingly clear if you understand them. To a first century Jewish person, there would be no mistake that the gospel writers portrayed Jesus as he goes to his crucifixion as cursed by God. I mean, think about it first. Jesus was handed over to the pagan or the Gentile rulers of Palestine for judgment. And then he's taken outside the city for his execution. I mean, this is reminiscent of in the Old Testament when a lawbreaker would be taken outside of the camp to be punished. And then second, as Jesus is crucified, there was a darkness that enveloped the whole land. I mean, remember the great blessing of Israel that we just read from number six, may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. Uh, Theologian John Stott writes this. He says, for what is darkness in biblical symbolism but separation from God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all? Outer darkness was one of the expressions Jesus used for hell, since it is an absolute exclusion from the light of God's presence. Into that outer darkness, the Son of God plunged for us. Our sins blotted out the sunshine of his Father's face. And then thirdly, and this is what Paul pointed out in verse 13 of our passage, Christ was nailed up to a cross, nailed up to a tree, For all to see. And he quotes again from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 21, where it's told if an Israelite committed a crime worthy of execution, after he was executed, he would be affixed to a piece of lumber or to a tree for the remainder of that day as a statement, as a public declaration. This wicked lawbreaker is under God's curse. There was nothing magical about being hanged on a tree as if that were the curse. It was a statement that this person, because of their wickedness, was under God's curse and had been justly punished. Reformer John Calvin helps us put the pieces together. He said this, It was not unknown to God what death his own son would die when he pronounced the law. He that is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. George Herbert, a pastor and poet in the 1600s, captures the incredible irony of the scene in this stanza from his poem called The Sacrifice. And it's told from the perspective of Christ himself on the cross. It says this, Oh, all ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all, but only me, was ever grief like mine. I mean, do you, do you see what was happening at the cross? Every aspect of the curse is being poured out on Jesus. I mean, the curse of sin affects us physically, and so we see Jesus' own body beaten, ripped apart, and crucified for us. The curse of sin affects us relationally, and so we see Jesus abandoned, betrayed by even his closest friends. The curse of sin affects us internally and personally. And so we see Jesus in anguish, sweating great drops of blood for us. The curse of sin affects us spiritually. And so we see Jesus forsaken by God for us. The one man to have kept God's commands and actually deserve his blessing was bearing the curse that he did not deserve. He was bearing our curse. I mean, just stop and think about this for a moment. From all eternity up until that moment, 
Jesus had known nothing but the voice of the Father saying, you are my son. I love you. I am well pleased with you. But now, on the cross, Jesus heard nothing but the silence of God's damnation so that you and I could finally hear the voice of God's acceptance, that he could now say to you and to me, you are my child, I love you, and I am pleased with you. Professor R.C. Sproul again said, he became a curse for us so that we will one day be able to see the face of God. God turned his back on his son so that the light of his countenance will fall on us. So it's no wonder that Jesus screamed from the depths of his soul. You see, this, this far outstrips any fairy tale or the most costly sacrifice. Because for Jesus, true love's kiss was the kiss of death. I mean, it's like he, the beauty of heaven, didn't just agree to come live with the beast, but he became the beast so that you and I could become the beauty that he created us to be. The weight of the curse of God was unloaded from our shoulders and placed upon him. And it crushed him. All our sins, all our curse, all of our judgment. So it's no wonder when Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would suffer, he said he would be crushed for our iniquities. And that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And I think I need to implore you, don't turn away from this. Don't minimize this. I mean, modern people, we tend to flinch at the idea of a God who demands satisfaction for sin. But this is what Jesus willingly gave himself to do. Uh, Reverend Kim, uh, Tim Keller writes about this. He says, fairly often, I meet people who say, I have a personal relationship with a loving God, and yet I don't believe in Jesus Christ at all. Why, I ask. Well, my God is too loving to pour out infinite suffering on anyone for sin. But this shows a deep misunderstanding of both God and the cross. On the cross, God himself, incarnated as Jesus, took the punishment. So the question becomes, what did it cost your kind of God to love us and embrace us? What did he endure to receive us? Where did this God agonize, cry out, where were his nails and thorns? The only answer is, I don't think that was necessary. But then ironically, in our effort to make God more loving, we have made him less loving. His love, in the end, needed to take no action. It was sentimentality, not love at all. The worship of a God like this will be at most impersonal, cognitive, and ethical. There will be no joyful self-abandonment, no humble boldness, no constant sense of wonder. We cannot sing to him, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. You see, the more you recognize what Jesus had to bear for you, the more you'll be ravished by his love and moved to love him in return. So not only is there a curse, but there is a cross where Jesus bore became, and even broke our curse. And he did all of this so that lastly, we could know the blessing. Chapter three, verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
Now, in this one verse, Paul is tying together a whole host of loose threads from the Old Testament. But to try to put it simply, he's saying that the blessing of dwelling with God again and having God dwell with you is now available to any person from any nation through simply trusting and receiving it in Jesus Christ. This is Paul's and ours happy ever after. And you see, there's two ways of trying to deal with the weight of the curse that we all live under. One, you can attempt to work it off yourself. But as we've already seen, that it's, just, it's a dead end. Or second, you can accept that Christ has borne your curse for you, and you can fall at his feet in love and wonder. Because this is what it means to be blessed. To be blessed is to be forgiven. Psalm 32 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, you are truly blessed when you know the freedom that comes through forgiveness. You are truly blessed when there's no pretense of innocence, but only a plea for grace. Now, this doesn't mean, obviously, that we should no longer seek to obey God or follow his ways, but now we can do this with totally different motives. Now we can live for God and walk in the way of his laws, not to get him off of our back or to remove a curse, because our curse was already placed on his back. We obey him because we know he's good. We know he has our best interest at heart, even when he calls for our difficult difficult obedience. I mean, this is worth considering. It's worth asking yourself, you know, what are your usual internal motives for obeying God or doing good? I mean, is it to get him off of your back? Is it to hedge the curse and obtain his blessing? Or is it out of a settled sense of love and thankfulness for his willingness to bear your judgment? I mean, there's, there's so much freedom in this. I mean, it's interesting, you know, with the, with the coronavirus outbreak and us meeting for the first time uh, live stream last week, I, I just started thinking, I mean, a bit about myself, but all of us too. I wonder if for any of you regular churchgoers, there started to bubble up within you a bit of a feeling of uneasiness or guilt <laughs> about the prospect of missing church for like, you know, who knows how long? I mean, maybe that's even why you're live streaming right now, is so you don't feel so bad about missing church. You're like, well, I can't be there, so second best thing, may as well check in on the live stream. But you know, that's not how it's meant to be. Because of Christ and in Christ, our standing with God is not based on church attendance or taking communion or giving to the poor or any number of other good religious activities. Now, are those things unimportant? Of course not. Do we miss some of them? Yes, but they do not determine God's acceptance of us in Christ. And again, this is never meant to serve as an excuse for sin but rather a powerful antidote to remaining stuck in sinful, selfish patterns. I mean, if anything, a real understanding of the mercy of God should create in us a strong distaste for sin because we have looked upon 
and seen just how much it cost him to bear the weight of it. And these truths that we've spoken about today, they are meant to free you from sin because your curse and your penalty have already been dealt with. And so when you fail, when you fail God for the thousandth time, you do not have to hide in the corner from him. You do not have to hide from anyone else. God has replaced your fig leaves of fear with a robe of righteousness. You can confess your sin. You can leave it behind and you can move forward unburdened. It no longer rests on your shoulders. And so in the words of a hymn that we often sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Let's take some time now to stop and reflect, pray, and think about what we've heard this morning.